For those who fish, this is the Drake Cast. Bonus episode. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Welcome back, folks. Just a few days ago, in episode number 41, we went through the contents of the summer 2018 issue of the Drake magazine. But while doing so, we ran a little short on time, and we weren't able to fit in a reading by one of our contributing authors, Dave Zobi. In addition to teaching composition, Wyoming literature, poetry, and creative nonfiction at Casper College in Wyoming, Zobi has written for dozens of magazines. And in April of this year, Zobi released a collection of essays under the title, Fish Like You Mean It, which you can find a link to on our website, drakemag.com. And so what we're going to do today is listen to Dave Zobi read his essay, Eggs in My Beer, which is about getting in over your head on Montana's Bighorn River. If you like it, maybe you go check out his book. My fishing buddy is the house painter Brian Farmer. California transplant, above average skier, mustache aficionado, and soccer coach for his daughter's team. Together, Brian and I suffered in the late 90s with inaugural fly fishing combos and VHS tapes on nymphing small streams. We terrorized the put-and-takes within the city limits of Fort Collins by crawling purple conehead buggers along the silted lake floors. We were so inept, so ill-prepared, after one miserable February trip to the frying pan near Aspen, a trip wherein we slept on my ex-girlfriend's floor living on light beer and the occasional thrilling glimpses of Paige and her roommates as they scurried, barely dressed, to and from the on-site hot tub with various European suitors. We considered giving up fly fishing for bowling. During the day, those brief and bright hours, we froze our feet, obsessing over 10-inch trout. We saw them thinning in the river. We maneuvered around shelf ice in clear view of $10 million estates. We didn't catch anything, even though there was a hatch of something or other coming off every afternoon. On the second day, Brian had a strike but missed it. My dog, Sweets, a gassy, beer-eyed chocolate Labrador retriever, vibing off the excitement of near success, swam through the pod of feeding trout like an enormous river otter to join Brian on the other side. Meanwhile, a great population of upper-class citizens from around the world skied and enjoyed apres and loud, boozy affectations. It was, after all, President's Day weekend. Fishless and thoroughly defeated by the hypersexual scene in Aspen, we drove home just shy of broken. At least with bowling, you always get a few, I said. We were in bumper-to-bumper ski traffic. What do you want? Eggs in your beer? Brian said. He said this all the time, a phrase he inherited from his father, who was a county sheriff. I don't think he was using it correctly, and I told him so. Brian's pursuits were refreshingly non-academic. He was the only person I knew in the 90s who wasn't working on a screenplay or a memoir. I saw right off that he was a perfectionist in manly things like refinishing furniture and shooting compound bows. That's why people hired him to paint their trophy homes that perched over the plains among the rust-colored rocks of northern Colorado's Horsetooth Reservoir. 
the owners of these homes invited him to golf, where he beat them easily by eight strokes. Little by little, his casting improved. He took fly tying classes. He fiddled with an acoustic guitar. His bugs looked exactly like the ones I was buying at $2.50 apiece. These were hard times, understand, when paying for flies hurt my wallet. I followed along in our pursuit for trout, not nearly as accomplished, but willing to keep forging ahead. In 1998, we discovered Montana. Turns out it had been there all along. Montana is where it all began and also where it nearly ended. It was the summer, a high water year, a year of thunderstorms and heat, a serious blue wing hatch, the year the river almost took us both. As we drove north towards the Wyoming-Montana line, the morning heat weltered. I was living in Laramie then, sorely impoverished and spending most of my time and money in the cowboy saloon. I had a used bow and was studying the brief flight of an arrow between the bowstring and the target. Over-caffeinated every day, I talked in feathery flights. Brian listened. Passing over the little creeks north of Sheridan did nothing to cool the air. You could feel the steam rising from the irrigated crops. We flew by the Battle of Little Bighorn. We said, as we always did, that we should stop there and see the museum. Campers and diesel pushers from all over the country were waiting to get in, but we were so trout-obsessed that we never stopped or even slowed down for anything else. We arrived in Fort Smith just in time for coffee, to buy licenses, and get a handful of promising flies. Brian asked the attendant behind the counter if this heat wave was unusual. In Montana, not in my lifetime, he said, as he counted out size 16 sow bugs in his palm. He threw in a special RS2 and gave us a wink. They're slamming these, he said. Brian said the thing about eggs and beer. Outside, a pack of dogs ran by on a mission. There was a bulldog mix, a sort of chow, some limping mishmash creature with lab and collie leanings. I felt a pang of anxiety each time I looked out the window and saw a drift boat slide by the fly shop. Other fishermen were going to grab all the other choice runs for themselves. I wanted to row downstream and set up on the somewhat famous gravel bar across from Crow Beach, where I'd done well in the past. Before we left the shop, the attendant told us to watch out for the sweeper below three mile. Someone lost a boat there a few days ago, he said. He shook his head sadly. I wondered if it was true or if he was being dramatic like guys in these remote fly shops choose to be. The river was crowding 12,000 cubic feet a second. I'd never seen it this big before. And Brian and I stood at the boat ramp trying to imagine how one might get the boat away from the shore without trundling along the Russian olives that quivered in the current. I pictured a variety of disasters. There were no banks for bank fishermen, just a green, intimidating slug of water sprinting towards the Dakotas. Only my fear of the river allowed me to forget the searing heat of August in Montana. I checked to make sure we had life jackets. We readied everything in the boat, cooler, Rods, fly vests, a charcoal cooking stove, 
Sweets, who was oblivious to the power of the river, seemed willing to plunge right in if we'd only let her. I lifted Sweets over the gunnels as Brian sat at the oars, then I shoved off and leapt aboard. Seized by the full current of the river, we sped downstream. The water was clear and everything seemed to be going smoothly until I realized that most of our usual places, the fishing spot everyone who fishes the bighorn knows would be of no use. Submerged, obsolete, blown out by the voluminous water, these tried and true locations we had pilfered from the guides over the years were now zinging by, but tucked back into the landscape in the little dry oxbows and stony bays were new places. Most were occupied by drift boats and dotted with clots of fishermen. Brian, unhinged at the oars, rode the best he could, but he couldn't slow down. With a reckless tilt of the boat, we approached the braided section of the river. Our sidelong posture threatened to swamp us. I warned Brian several times to straighten us out. He dug in, and only by chance did we miss being sucked up into a log jam. We cussed at each other bitterly, the way people do in small craft. I offered to row as if I could do better. Finally, Brian was able to back row into some frog water behind an enormous island laced by creeks and trickles of water that had abandoned the main current and come ashore to wander. That was some ride, I might have said, or you nearly killed us. But probably I said nothing. I was too busy jumping ship and heading to a promising, fishy-looking shelf. The pea gravel was thoroughly pounded with boot prints from the previous day, so I knew we had lucked into something special. Just as I was beginning to cast, a guide and two clients drifted by, looking lovingly at the run. They couldn't hide their chagrin that we had beaten them to the spot. Have fun, said the guide, digging in his oars as he turned and pushed past. The run was full of hard-fighting rainbows that willingly took our sow bugs and whatever else we offered. We were fairly green, so we paused often to photograph almost every trout we caught. We had a tiny video camera and we recorded ourselves. By staying tucked back against the curve of the stream, we were able to keep the large fish out of the main current. We landed dozens of trout. All morning we hardly moved, just marched back and forth to the boat for water and to change leaders when ours frayed. I was so happy with my dog by my side and my rod bent to near critical degrees that I lost track of time. The only thing was the heat. The foliage on the trees steamed and crackled. I was terribly hungry, but unwilling to stop and eat because Brian and I were secretly keeping track of who had the most fish, another badge of amateurism. Sweets went off and rousted a hen pheasant from the scorched brush. Then she reappeared and collapsed in the river, wetting her undercarriage. A flotilla of guides and clients came by to survey our position to see if we were going to stay there all day or give it up. At noon, I couldn't take it any longer. I had to get out of my neoprene waders. I put my point fly on the hook keeper and tossed my rod into the willows. I then tore off everything and drank a beer in my shorts. I put my boots back on but didn't tie the laces. During this time, Brian continued to catch trout. He was battling a foot and a half long brown trout while I sat on the gunnel. I searched the storage areas for sunblock. Brian said the trout were zooming out of their feeding lanes to grab flies. 
We couldn't believe that we had fallen into this spot. There was no reason to move or rest the pool. It seemed as if there was an unending supply of fish. I ripped the cooler out of the boat, set up the grill in the grass, poured lighter fluid on the charcoal briquettes, then hit the whole stack again with a few more blasts. I dug a match from my vest and lit the whole deal. The grill, a yard and a half of riparian habitat, and one side of the beer cooler all danced in flames. I felt the blaze on my bare legs. Sweets beeline for the river. The initial explosion stunned me so much that I froze. The flames licked across the dry grass and headed for a dead cottonwood. Brian jogged over. Together we stomped on the flames until they retreated to the grill and the briquettes. We were out of breath. He didn't berate me for nearly adding to the western fire load, almost burning down a famous fishing destination. Instead, he hurried back to the run and began to cast. He hooked a fish and whooped as it leapt three times in succession. I threw four wieners on the grill and waited impatiently for them to blister. Sweets, her eyelashes singed from the flare-up, sat close by and gazed at the hot dogs. In much in the same way, the guides looked dreamily at this run as they drifted by. Things were back on track, I thought. I ate a wiener with my fingers. Its core was cold. Now I wet-weighted, a Western custom that has all but disappeared with the democratization of breathable waders. Casting upstream and letting my rig roll down through the chutes and drop-offs, I quickly got back in the game. Brian was so connected with the run and the fantastic fishing that he couldn't stop casting. He asked me to retrieve a hot dog from the grill. I suppose he expected me to put it in his mouth for him. I refused. He was into his backing on a trout that went maybe the magical 20 inches. At this moment, I realized he had undone his waders. The straps dangled in the river current. He had rolled down his chest waders to escape the heat putting his wading belt in his Velcro pouch. The big rainbow worked upstream, but changed course as truly big fish do and tried to push its way back into the main current. Once there, it would lay lengthwise in the current and refuse to budge. Brian began working his way towards the fish to gain some line. Sweets followed along and sat by his side, peering into the green water, sensing that something was happening. They walked downstream, past the boat, Brian trying to adjust the drag to prevent the fish from running again. Despite his best efforts, the fish left the oxbow and fought its way into the main channel of the bighorn. Brian maneuvered out to the tip of an island and stood his ground. I didn't like the look of things. I told Brian he should break off the fish. He was now waist deep out on the terminus of the island. Sweets thought she was in on the action. She paddled out to be near Brian when the current snatched her. She began to fade downstream. Brian saw her and stooped to grab her collar. He secured her for an instant by the ear, but the extra drag of the dog pulled him off the sandbar. His waders, without the belt, gulped water. At the same moment, he felt the sand and pea gravel vanish beneath him. He was able to call me 
and an anguished yelp. They all went into the bighorn. Brian, Sweets, and our hopes of a perfect day. There was no one nearby to scoop them out of the river. All this time I'd been eschewing guides in their boats, but right then we desperately needed one. I realized that there was a good chance Brian would be pulled under. I didn't want to go in, but I knew that was my only option. There was some sort of code involved, something I picked up in Newport News as a kid. I didn't think to throw him a life jacket. I had this image of myself saving my fishing buddy's life and maybe landing his trout too. Another image was of our bodies tucked under a cut bank. I tossed my fly rod into the brush, took a deep breath and dove. It was strange to be in the river. There was a dispersed, pleasant sound of the water rolling rocks and shearing off sandbars. Two feet under, it was lime green and rollicking. I stroked to close the distance between Brian and me. Sweets would have no problem. She'd find herself a place downstream and come ashore. But Brian, with his waders full of water, was slowly going down. His rod tip was aloft, still bouncing with the weight of the fighting fish. I was a few feet behind him, trying to talk him through the next maneuver. We were under the spell of a huge river, swept downstream, a log jam of river polished cottonwood trunks. You could see them rising whitely in the background. These half submerged trees presented a worst case scenario, but they also looked like a place to maybe haul yourself out. In no time, the river had ferried us down 100 yards to the pile of logs. Brian attempted to grab a thick trunk of cottonwood. He missed, spun in the water, and continued downstream. He was going under. My plan was to try to get him and kick like mad to shore. But it didn't come to that. He caught the next tree and the power of the river swung him up so he was able to throw a leg and pull himself halfway out. I floated downstream and found it on a snag covered with thousands of spiders. Brian held his rod tip up. The fish was still there. I heard the jingle of Sweets' collar somewhere back in the woods. She was shaking off water and jogging back to find us. We had all survived. Brian's waders were so full that he had difficulty pulling himself up the bank. His bulging waders were elephantine. His wading belt, along with a fly cup of extra sow bugs, had been suctioned out of his pouch, lost forever. While he clutched his fly rod, he undid his laces and tried to get his boots off. I walked downstream, calling my dog's name. Below me, in a swift dark run, I saw Brian's fish, a huge red-sided trout, shaking its head against the 3X and tiny fly. There was no back eddy in sight, no glide or pool to land it. There was just wild, powerful acres of sunlit water. 
Sweets burst through the brush, totally unaware that we'd all just risked our lives for a four pound trout. I walked back up to Brian. I can see your fish down there, I said. His wader still held a wealth of river water. He grabbed the fly line with his hands and pulled. The line went slack. I guess I'll walk upstream a couple hundred yards and see if I can swim out to the boat, I said. It had everything in it. Our wallets, car keys, cameras. It was our way home. Wieners sizzled on the grill out there. But thinking about going back into that river was unnerving. Brian said maybe we could flag down a guide and get him to row us. But it was late in the day, and most of the guides were downstream. Because my dog had caused the catastrophe, it seemed fitting that I would be the one to fix it. Sweets went with me as I walked through the poison ivy, devil's club, wild roses, and various nettles. Huge down cottonwoods lay here and there in the woods. Wads of toilet paper and various half-life told where fishermen went to honor the call of nature, as they must. Finally, I saw our boat on the island, the grill puffing away. I had to pass through some frog water where 20 or more trout were sipping blue wings. I swam at an angle to cross the run before it spat me out into the main channel. It wasn't as bad as I thought it might be. Sweet swam with me. But mostly alone in the green current, I nearly choked up with the thought of being swept away. When I got back to Laramie, I vowed I was going to stay out of the cowboy and finally get serious about life. I crawled out of the river like a stonefly. I doused the grill with water wrung from my t-shirt. I retrieved my fly rod. I dragged the boat upstream and dragged the oars. Brian had arrived and was standing across the back eddy and his soaked waders over his shoulder. In a few strokes, Sweets and I crossed the swift river and came to rest in the bay, the trout zooming away when they saw me approach. I thought I was going under, Brian said. I thought that was it. We pushed away from shore and began drifting into the main current, heading toward the takeout. We had a room in Fort Smith. We set up the grill again and cooked wieners. Brian's wife had sent a tub of pasta salad. Drift boats were gliding up and down the main drag, guides preparing for the next day on the river. It was nine and the sun was still up. Someone somewhere was cutting grass. You could smell the end of summer in the air. Brian shared his whiskey with a one-armed Austrian who said he was a line cook in town. This is all the more remarkable since there was no functioning restaurant within 50 miles. Stranger still, Otto had a guitar he couldn't play. Brian tuned it. They began singing songs, even Robert Orkeen's Feeling Good Again, which is a beautiful fantasy about enduring friendship and coming home intact. Standing down on Main Street across from Mr. Blues My faded leather jacket, my weathered brogan shoes A chill north wind was blowing but the spring was coming on As I wanted to myself just how long I had been gone So I strolled across old Main Street, walked down a flight of stairs Stepped into the hall and saw all my friends were there Neon sign was flashing, welcome, come on in. It feels so good, feels so good.
feeling good again. Otto knew the words, more or less. Moments like these make for perfect retreats. Sweet stayed on the wooden porch with an eye for marauding strays. I climbed the stairs and crawled into the twin bed. The blankets featured Indian ponies galloping over a rise. I cracked the window so I could hear Montana outside. The oceanic sounds of trucks going by in grandma gear. Two days later, we did what we said we always wanted to do. We went to the Little Bighorn Battlefield Monument and signed up for the tour. We gave up the 10 bucks. We cracked the windows of the truck and parked in the shade for sweets, though she was so spent from swimming in the river and rousting hen pheasants that she paid us no mind. The monument now rotates its docents in an effort to demonstrate history's many perspectives. One day, the tour is given by a historian from our university systems. The next day, it's narrated by a Native American. It just so happened that we landed on a day when a Native American gave the tour. Wesley was about five foot six and wore cowboy boots. Cal Berkeley alum, he had come back to Montana because he felt that's where he was needed most. Wesley wove frightening stories about how the battle went down. The soldiers were wearing wool tunics in the searing July heat. Their swords rattled in their scabbards and gave their positions away. Their ammunition was full of duds. Their horses were lame and confused by the withering flights of arrows, the rising dust. Wesley described the chaos and madness of Custer's last hours, the maneuvering of soldiers as they sought a defensible position, the horror that the wounded faced when the braves swept in to collect trophies. Someone in our group made a crash joke about Custer. Wesley froze and then said, No, sir. He was as tough as nails. He told us that the 7th Cavalry must be honored, and the Indian deaths too. Then he set us free to walk along the tawny rolling hills, dotted here and there by markers that denoted the fallen U.S. Cavalrymen, who were mostly immigrants and boys, people that came to the West for adventure not brutality. It wasn't uplifting, but it had a certain power to it that reminded me of rivers. I went off by myself while Brian filmed the area with his handheld. He started gabbing with a retiree from Arkansas. I could see the little bighorn in the distant heat. It was out of its banks and sizzling like hot metal. Just then I noticed something in the soil. I towed it. Brian came over with the Arkansan, and we stooped. It was a thin, corroded scrap of metal. Wesley saw us. He told us not to pick it up. He turned on his walkie-talkie and called a guy named Brian to come out. They find these all the time, said Wesley. The wind reveals them. Wesley said that maybe it was nothing, or maybe it was a piece of shrapnel, or an iron arrowhead mangled by time. Perhaps it was a damaged cartridge. Perhaps it saved a life. Perhaps it had taken a life. He took my name and said they'd send me some correspondence when they processed the fine. I'd get a formal thanks. Brian slapped me on the shoulder and said that things were looking up. He said the thing about eggs in your beer. We marched back through the pods of retirees milling around the battlefield. They were captivated by the place, by the blood pulsing through their own veins. 
the afternoon wind calling them to happy hour. A pair of aged wiener dogs in their camper that needed to potty. The oldsters snapped photos and talked in hushed tones. They grasped at each other's arms. Eggs in your beer means, I think, the thrill of the unexpected. Like when you tumble down a river and come out unscathed, without a clear dissertation of the event. I was going back to Laramie and make a straight line for the library. I had several books in mind. I was going to turn things around for myself and live with intention. I was going to begin by cleaning my house, arranging my duck decoys, throwing out old fishing tackle ravaged by time. When I got around to working with the hunting bow, I was going to study the earnest, brief flight between the string and the target. Sweets was going back to obedience school. I'd make good on my second chance. Once and for all, I'd cure my sickness for trout streams and roaring rivers. But promises like these fade as you get closer to the target. They're self-referential, and that is all. And you don't mean these resolutions even as you create them. You mean the opposite.